Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Sam Fishman from the plugin developer Music Hack. First of all, the latest RIAA mid-year sales report is out, and it turns out that streaming is responsible for 84% of all revenue from recorded music. Now, the report says that there are 96 million subscribers to music in the United States alone. This is pretty amazing in the fact that not all that long ago, people were saying that we'd never get to 50 million subscribers, and then it was 100 million subscribers. And now we're way past that worldwide and just about hitting 100 in the United States. The downside is that we're reaching the saturation point as there probably won't be that many more available subscribers in the United States soon. So this is an area to watch in the future. Now, the good thing is that revenue will soon go up as Spotify, YouTube Music, Apple Music, Amazon Music, and Deezer, they all raise their prices. But those numbers aren't reflected right now, and they probably won't be until the end of the year. Vinyl leveled off revenue-wise, though, but it still beats CDs in units, 23 million versus 15 million. The downside there is that there are 400,000 less vinyl sales than year before. Digital downloads are also down another 12%, and digital albums are down 12% as well. Surprisingly, ringtones and ringbacks still continue to hang around as U.S. consumers paid more than $6 million for them in the first half of the year. That's a really good lesson for those that think that the CD is going to go away completely. Some formats just continue to hang on. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new Hitmaker Engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, this past June, the famed Moog Music was acquired by music conglomerate InMusic. InMusic owns many other instrument audio and DJ brands, including Numark, Stanton, Denon DJ, Akai, Alesis, M-Audio, Marantz, and Air. Even though Moog is an iconic synthesizer manufacturer, it had been struggling with supply chain disruption and material shortages before the sale. The company raised the cost of many of its already expensive synths in the past year, and the reason why was because of the business difficulties it was going through. The hope was that Moog would be able to chug along making synthesizers in Nashville, North Carolina, only with much greater resources thanks to InMusic's much deeper pockets. That will not be the case, though, as last week InMusic fired most of Moog's production and shipping staff, which probably means that production of Moog synths will soon be done in Asia. The rest of the Moog staff is also fearful that they're going to be next. 
we hate to see people lose jobs and then have those jobs shipped overseas. Not only that, Moog was part employee owned and that ended with the InMusic acquisition. The positive spin on this is that the legendary brand and products are going to continue. The bad part is that the company will be changed forever. My guest today is composer, plugin developer, Sam Fishman from the plugin company Music Hack. Music Hack is the brainchild of both Sam and Grammy-nominated producer and engineer Stan Green. Their first product is the innovative mastering plugin Masterplan. Sam is a seasoned software developer whose portfolio spans audio DSP, web development, and embedded systems. He's obsessed with building creative, functional, major label quality products that don't look like airplane cockpits. During the interview, we spoke about getting the most from the Masterplan plugin, the different audio needs for different music genres, trends in plugins, how AI will be used in plugins in the future, and much more. I spoke with Sam via Zoom from his office in Los Angeles. Some of your background here and how you get into doing this. Oh, man. Um, I've, I've been playing with music tech since I was a kid. So I started out like on sound blasters, you know, um, uh, the consumer cards and this uh, MIDI sequencer called Voyetra that was running on DOS. So I always was playing around with that stuff. I think I was sequencing tracks from like a Beatles songbook and like the My Ma- <laughs> the Little Mermaid uh, soundtrack. I guess I had that as I was learning piano because the songs were really good. Um, and then I just, I just kept it with me my whole life. I learned to play piano, but I kind of fell off the lessons. And then I went to school for music composition because I just really fell into that. I got a four track and started playing with VSTs in high school and uh, the early propeller head software. Uh, I was into electronic music a lot. So I, I played with Rebirth before Reason and all that. And so I had changed my course. I was going to be a philosophy guy. And then I was like, you know what? Music. So I studied music composition and I was introduced to the... Um, uh, the kind of Miller Puckett type languages. So Max MSP and pure data and stuff like that. And I loved messing with that in all sorts of ways. And that that, that kind of just carried it through for me. Um, in my adult life, I kind of hopped back and forth away because I could never at first figure out how to really make a living um, in the music industry. I think everyone takes a different journey there. Uh, essentially what happened is I became a, a software developer in order to make a living when I didn't know how to use my love for music to to feed me, to keep the lights on. And uh, I finally just decided, you know what, it's time to fuse them a few years ago. Um, And I brought back all that knowledge that I had from the kind of graphical programming languages and time spent in production camps and stuff like that with what my day job was. Um, And I really, I'm really glad I did it, I guess. (laughs) It was a long route. Yeah. Where did you go to school? Uh, It was, it's University of California, Santa Barbara. So just up the road. Um, And they have a creative studies program where they give you a lot of freedom. Uh, And so you know, I got to do things like make a prepared piano by putting clay and nuts and bolts in it. I don't think there's a lot of universities that would allow that. <laughs> so it was, I, I got to play around a lot and, and had a lot of leeway. Um, I don't mean, it, it's just, uh, and so that was really formative. And I, it got me into trouble because I was trying so many unique things that at some point they had to sit me down and be like, look, Sam, you have to notate some music and have it judged in order to graduate. So stop playing on the computer, which I took offense to at the time, but I, I realize why now. You know, I, I went there because I told them I wanted to teach me this thing, and here I was doing another thing. They can't help me learn that other thing, so of course they wanted me to do the thing they could help me with. And um, so I did it. I did it. <laughs> and uh, I ended up where I am. Okay, so now let's come fast forward here. So you're working as a software developer. And what kind of software, by the way? 
Oh, before um, I was working in totally different field. So it's uh, they're called embedded systems. So they're the kind of um, oh my dog's jumping up at me with a uh, squeaky yeah. toy here. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so they're the kind of computers that you have in like cars and airplanes, um, the, in the military, medical devices, stuff that's super super. It's critical. You can't have mistakes in them, or if you do, they have to be really really minor. So the industry is very different than say the um, web industry where they can move fast and break things. Right? It's a slow moving cautious industry. And so I spent time with the tools that other developers use to make very high reliability software. And I was kind of an infrastructure guy at first. I helped make the tools that they used to make sure that they were doing a good job making their tools. So it's like layers of meta on top of layers of meta. Yeah. Uh, and then I moved into actually helping making uh, testing software, but I was working on the software itself. So helping people collect analytical data about the way they were doing their testing to make sure that by the time they would sell this testing software to say, you know, Toyota or Porsche, or I don't know who, uh, or medical devices company. And by the time that that company was putting their stuff into cars or medical devices, they had a fair degree of confidence that what they had made was safe. That's just a whole other world. Boy, I don't think I ever spoke to anybody that worked in that field before. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, and there's embedded systems in our audio interfaces. That's another great example. I just totally forgot. Like uh, digital synths, audio, those are, those are all embedded systems. So yeah. I should have, I should have drawn that line. It wasn't like, <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So then how did you come to music hack then? Oh, oh man. So I, I wonder how many people do this. I started programming. I started programming an audio, right. Trying to figure out what is it that I can do. That's, that's special. And I think, I was making stuff that was really complicated uh, to use because I was just trying to explore all the possibilities. This was a new, it was a new Lego set or whatever it is you play with, like a new, a new mixing console, like whatever. Like I just wanted to try everything. And I was invited into these um, production camps because of some, some people that I was, I was doing production with a few, a few years prior when I had moved, moved to LA, it was called safety club international. It was, it was really great because I was running these ideas by producers who were working on what they wanted to be in the next pop hits. And there were a bunch of different people coming in and out of these production camps. And I learned very quickly, like people that are working on this kind of music, they want to really, they want to really know like, Oh, if I turn this knob, I want to hear what it does very quickly because I want to move on to the next knob. I want to know like how I can do this kind of thing. And I realized like, okay, I have no idea uh, how to design a product. You know, I know how to, I know how to program. I know how to do this, but when it comes to music, I hadn't, hadn't thought enough about it, which is funny because I prided myself on that in other areas. And so I, um, I was, I was trying to figure this stuff out and I was collaborating with one of these producers that I had met and, and tried some other things. And then randomly through a friend of mine that I just has no connection to music really whatsoever. He grew up with, uh, Stan Green, who's my business partner in music hack. Uh, and he, and he said, Oh, you just described something like I should put you in contact with this friend of mine. He's a really great guy. He's a mixer, um, in LA for architect studios and he does artist management and a bunch of stuff. So I gave that guy a copy of my plugin. I gave Stan a copy of the plugin. It didn't work in pro tools. It was, just, it, was uh, <laughs> it was just a VST or something like that. And something weird was happening. And so he contacts our mutual friend. He's like, yo, did, did you just make me get a virus? Like, is this going to destroy my computer? Uh, and so I was, <laughs> I was like, no, 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 never do that. You yeah, know, and, the fear um, of every producer. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. Cause like your computer's probably, you know, been locked for five to six years. You're like, I'm not going to change unless I absolutely have to for some tool I need. 
which is its own challenge for developers like me. And it's just like, oh, no, no. So, you know, I was like, oh, it's the last guy that will ever do that here. Let me put you on the phone with him. So we talked back and forth, got the plugin working, was like, wow, this is better than I expected from some random connection. We sat down, ate lunch, tried a few things together. And after a bit, we're like, all right, you know, we found a music hack and we started working on this mastering plugin to know like, okay, we have an idea, you know. Was the mastering plugin from the beginning then that you were working on? Stan and I, yes. At the beginning, I myself was working on a synthesizer I was calling Wavy. Um, we had all kinds of cool stuff in it. And then I was working on a, a saturator for a while called the heater. Um, and that product is, you know, it's in the background for now. Um, and that's the one that I they shared with um, with Stan. But him, he, from the very get-go, was like, I have a mastering chain. I know it's good. Let's make every component of it perfect and then make them sing together. So we did it. Like I was telling you, I've played with it. It's very cool. No, thanks. But there's a lot of competition. There, right now, there, there's a lot of mastering tools out there. And a lot of them are built the same way. They're built along the lines of a mixer or a mastering engineer's signal path. And everybody has has one that's slightly different. Some are more aggressive than others. It's an interesting path to go down. But that being said, it's also one that so many people want these days because they want to bypass mastering if they can. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a tricky, that's a, you put your finger on a really tricky conversation because it's like, what, what is it about mastering, right? I think there's so much, like so much of music is it's kind of surrounded by mystique. And I feel like mastering is one of those processes that is for the longest time been the most deeply shrouded in the mystique, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's lots of things that have, you know, we've kind of uncovered ways to um, make them more accessible, but mastering is something that I think a lot, most everybody holds with great reverence. And so it's when you're, when you're trying to tackle that kind of thing, it's really important to be like, okay, well, what am I doing for mastering? Am I helping um, people bypass mastering? Am I helping mastering engineers get more efficient? Am I helping, helping engineers that do, let's say, mixing now be able to provide mastering for for their service offering. And they can say, hey, look, I can master your track too. The thing we can't do, no matter how I make the product with Stan, we cannot replace the skills or the ears of an excellent mastering engineer. We can do the best we can to make it possible for someone to get the results that someone like that could get given a, a really good set of tools. But I think that one thing you can't do is, is, um, is really replace kind of yeah, the skill in the ear of somebody who knows what to listen for. And that's something especially I learned when developing the plugin with Stan is that I have to learn how to listen for certain things in order to make the DSP right. You know, because I he'd ask for something, I would work on it, send it back. And it's kind of this magical thing where you have to talk a fair amount to understand, I did, in order to understand what is it that I really need to listen for. Why am, what, why am I making this mistake? I can make programming mistakes all the time. It'll just crash the computer. But if I make a design mistake in terms of how something sounds, I need somebody to step in there and be able to give me examples and, and, and show me. So that's that's one thing. But what that means for the product is we want to make a tool that that kind of does it all. It streamlines the process for people that know what they're doing and want to work in the box. If you're a mastering engineer that wants to work out of the box, you got to do it. You know, keep go for it. Like you have that gear that gives you that sound. Do it. But if you work in the box, we want to say, hey, you don't need eight plugins anymore. You can use these. This one, it's got the things that you need. It's tuned to the things that you're listening for. You can now focus on your work instead of 
being like, man, I wish this were 10% better or this plugin didn't keep interfering with that one or my license went down for the limiter. And so now I got to plug in this other one and, and all this other stuff. And the third thing is we wanted it to be accessible to producers that just want to be like, hey, I have a pretty good ear. I can get a good amount of the way there and competitively too. But I don't want to spend 45 minutes trying to figure out how to twiddle the attack and release them like on a, on a, on a limiter uh, because I don't want to pride myself on how technical I am. I want to pride myself on my creativity and my ear and the sound that I could get. And that's why we named our controls loud, wide, high, low, thick. Because instead of thinking about the tools in terms of specifically how they're manipulating the sound, so attack and release the ballistic circuit of a compressor would be a perfect example. I want people to think of like, do I want the sound to be louder or not? Do I want it to sound wider or not? And then listen to their ears and say, okay, that's too wide. It's beginning to sound like it's underwater or uh, ah, I'm pushing the loudness too hard. It's distorting. So I really don't, I really don't like that. And I, I, I think that that will allow people that are um, and on those levels to be like, to trust their ears more rather than, you know, having to dive through a lot of information, some of which is questionable and some of which is not about how to achieve those, uh, those results. There's a lot to, lot to unpack here. One of the things that producers and mixers especially face is the fact that they almost have to self-master. Because if you send a mix out that isn't as loud as what people are used to, they're going to call you on it and say, this mix doesn't sound as good when what they mean is it's not as loud. So they right. need a tool to in order to at least get it in that ballpark at that level. And then there's the second problem where if you do that, then you're scared to death to take it off if you send it to mastering because you already had a client that signed off on it. So it's you, brutal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, you know, you're stuck in the middle there. And now when I visit mastering engineers, I watch and they get in basically self-mastered tracks that they have to make just a little better if they can. And that seems to be the, the way it's going these days. Yeah. It sounds to me that it's, it's also related to people giving out advice that you should mix into kind of one of these master buses, right? Um, and I think that people fall on either side of the fence on that. But the more people do that, the more they're kind of cranking it before it gets to the mastering engineer. And then I think um, Mark Abrams from Pure Mix was taking a look at this and, and he he said something like, now when I get a mix from from a client that's just like ungodly loud already, I, that the fear, you know, he didn't say this, I'm paraphrasing him now, but it's like the fear hits where he's like, I need to make this sound good, but if I make it sound good, and I can't push the volume, they're going to reject it because it's not going to sound loud. And that's a scary thing because you want to be proud of your own work, but you also need to please your client. And one of the comments he made on master plan is he was a little bit less afraid because he could push the volume and it didn't seem to destroy some of the work that he was doing. I think not everyone will have that experience because everybody does different things in their mastering chain and wants different things out of their music. So you might select a mastering engineer based on a sound they have, right? I mean, that's you know, kind of the God particles angle is like, we got, you know, a couple controls, but mostly one knob. And like, if you love that guy's sound, you get this plugin and then you can do that. So less flexibility, but whatever. And so we, I, I don't know, I, I can rant too much. So I got to stay focused yeah. here. But um, yeah, I think that's, that's a challenge to look out for. And so providing people with clean loudness is, is a big challenge. Um, but with that's also the educational problem of, you have to listen, you know, we put the unity button on there for a reason. And that's, 
if you just crank the volume, it, I don't care what limiter you're using. You could use our limiter, which I'm of course proud of. You could use um, Perel 2, you could use FGX, you could use anything. When you crank it, if you're not paying attention and you're just listening to loudness, like, you know, it's something bad's gonna happen to that audio and um, you should be paying attention. So pay attention, you know. Yeah, that happens a lot. One of the things that I've noticed and admired about mastering engineers, when I've sat and looked over their shoulder while they were working, was how little they actually do to get great results. So you look and you go, oh wait, that's half a dB here and a quarter dB there, and why does it sound so much better? That's a dB of limiting here and it's a dB of compression. Why is it so much better? And I think one of the problems with plugins is that if you're inexperienced, it's really easy to crank the hell out of them and destroy your mix basically, not understanding that, you know, less is more. Yeah, I agree. And um, we put that in our, we put, we try to put a lot of information in our user manual saying as much kind of like, Hey, don't even worry about the bottom row buttons. You should play with the top four kind of work them subtly each until you get something you like, and then mess with the bottom row. Only if you hear a problem, you're going for something specific. It's, it's really hard with a new toy, not to try to throw it at everything. Um, and not only that, throw every feature of the toy at everything. And that, kind of what I was saying earlier, that's part of the restraint and um, experience that you learn as a mastering engineer that no one can sell you that um, in terms of an instantaneous win, right? I think there's some AI, AI companies claiming that, but it's it just doesn't sound the same to my ears. I think that, you know, uh, you have to, that's something you have to develop and using your ears is really important. Um, and I think it's worth people learning to use their ears in conjunction with whatever tool it is they've decided is like their ergonomic fit. Right. Yeah, I, I think the other thing really is if you're going to use anything well, you should have a reference point, meaning listen to somebody, that, something that sounds really good already, and then compare what you're doing to it. And is it better or worse? And that's what many, especially inexperienced mixers and producers fail to do. But it's absolutely critical. Yeah, I think maybe if we made like a little tutorial video that just showed people, hey, leave Unity on the whole time and then just toggle that bypass button. You know, and you're like, okay, I'm working with Unity Gain. I'm making sure that I'm not doing something crazy. And I just, first of all, not even a reference against anything else, just a reference against what, what did it sound like coming in? Am I truly at equal volume making it better? And then you only pop Unity off at the very end when you're like, all right, cool, I'm confident. I think that is one thing that could go a long way to, to get people in the habit of doing. Yeah, it still takes restraint and discipline, <laughs> I think, yeah. uh, no matter what you're using. One of the things that I want to talk to you about is the UI, because on the surface, it looks very simple, which is exactly what you want. However, there's a lot more going on under the hood that's easily accessed, if you want, that makes a lot of sense. It's not pushed in your face, which so many of the, there's one plugin, especially by a very famous mastering engineer, that looks like it's the cockpit of a space shuttle. There's so much going yeah. on that nobody in their life, except for that one person, could ever make it work. In this case, it's like, oh yeah, no, wait, this is easy. This will do it, no problem. So how'd you come up with the UI? Lots of iterations with Stan. So essentially, um, it's kind of cool. When I'm working on something, I might, I might have one component of the thing. So let's say the smooth part of the compressor. It's just a very subtle effect. I might have like 10 different dials to sort of tweak it in so we can set it where it makes sense as a very um, good general 
just last little kiss compression where you don't you don't want to really go too much um so the two of us can refine it together and then we can sort of cement it into place uh once we found something there's a few approaches you can take to this one you could leave all the controls out there then you end up with a spaceship cockpit another you can put them behind an advanced screen and so we're sort of leaning that direction with the of the buttons but we only wanted like one little adjust per and the third is to just be like hey this has a sound you turn it on or you turn it off and so making wise decisions about which things to do that with uh is just a lot of how the design works it takes a lot of communication it takes a developer like who well, i guess like i think myself who's going to listen to when stan says you know hey we don't need to change this part maybe for another maybe for another plugin or something that's trying to be more for producers or the 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 more creative part of the mixing process but the mastering process is about it's like salting the food it's bringing out everything without taking you know just taking it somewhere else entirely yeah yeah if that makes any sense i can elaborate on it i just um i think it's a general idea that's sort of it just requires a lot of communication and and decide and making smart decisions about what are the things that will give you a lot of a lot of creative it gives you a high create like creative control for a low like number of controls and that's where to that's where to put your time i think yeah yeah definitely um how do you come up with the true peak presets oh so those are just a simple uh a simple thing that pops down the output by one one db um we're working on some more stuff related to that to try to clamp down a little more uh, I think that the big deal was we had White Sea Studios has a he's a pretty big uh, YouTube blogger influencer that kind of stuff. So we heard he got his hands on our plugin, and uh, I think any plugin developer should be terrified just because you know if he doesn't like it, he will he will tell people. Yeah. So he sent us an email with um, beforehand. He said, "Hey, I know you're a new company, and I want to talk about your plugin. So let me let me strike a deal with you. I'm going to tell you all the things I don't like about it right now." And you can you can choose to listen to me. You can fix them, or you cannot, and that's going to inform what I do. <laughs> and so, of course, like we had a back and forth about about the loudness, the loudness war, true peaks, luffs, some decisions we made about metering, a lot of things. And we just we just talked it out. I think that I think we have a different perspective than him when it came down to it. But we we realized and we decided that like you know what, it's important that both camps have the ability to get what they want out of a plugin. If you're in EDM or um, hip hop or genres that really want to like smack, right? They're just like, I don't care. <laughs> like, I just want to push it. And, uh, you know, the circles of people that are giving each other advice, they're telling them to do that. And if you're in a camp that's uh, kind of like a much more of like a temple of sound camp where they're like, look, I need to make sure that no matter what I do, the highest quality gets from this point to that point. Uh, so the True Peak presets came about as a compromise between because we had put all our presets for the output cranked in point negative point one and a couple other things under the hood different uh and so like you know what we like the sound of our presets so we're going to provide alternatives that are more aware of and try to push back on it so that no matter what camp you're in you have a good decision you can make and it's not like the plugin isn't speaking to you because we didn't want people that we think our plugins really transparent and clear and we didn't want people that were um that cared about this like purity standpoint to avoid it simply because um, it wasn't hitting something that's a metric. We tried to hit it. An idea might be to have a a vinyl setting on it. A vinyl. That's preset. a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah we 
we've had a few users talk about that. Because, you know, the typical thing for a mastering engineer is to drop it down a few dB and roll off a little bit of the, the bottom, the sub bass that won't translate. So that would be fairly easy, I would think. Yeah, we just, um, we'd probably gather some advice. I don't know if Stan is mastered for vinyl, but we could probably gather advice from a few different vinyl mastering engineers, get the sure. lay of the landscape and see. Sure. Yeah. The other thing I really liked was the, I forget what you call it, but there's a, a switch over on the right where you could set it for, let's see, it was dim and NS10 and band and uh, what the phone and mono. That, that was cool. It's very useful, but it's kind of out of the way. Yeah, we're, we're working on ways to make it a little easier to use, and it's pretty easy to forget that you could bounce your track with it on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, but it, that's actually really useful. The dim one drops it by 6 dB, and it steals from the limiter circuit the volume before it, it turns down the volume. So its purpose is, if you are one of those people that likes to mix through this thing, you can just pop it on dim and bounce your tracks, and you have something that's been lowered to send out. Now, it will still suffer from... If you've overdone it, <laughs> like mm. it'll still suffer a little, but since it steals from the limiter first, it's trying to be like, hey, I will remove whatever processing I can for that purpose. But it also has the, like phone, for instance, was useful and NS10. Those settings were, I thought, very cool. I don't know how close they are, but but close enough. Yeah, NS10 is decent. I want, I want to do some more on phone. I think the phone is a little, I think it's a little shrill for how modern day phones are. I could probably tweak that particular algorithm a bit. Yeah, I thought <laughs> so. so too. Definitely. Okay. Here's a philosophical question for you. Sure. Where do you see plugins going in the future? What's the trend? That's a good one. I feel like I see two different routes diverging. I think that the current route of like, oh, it's the latest version of a legendary piece of gear is going to continue forever. I think that essentially, um, no matter what new technology comes out or whatever, there will always be a market for like, oh, it's the new best 1176 yeah, yeah. thing. I think we can't kill that. And that makes me a little sad because it's like how, you know, where are the diminishing returns and like, it's great, but it's sort of like with computers, we've opened up this whole new set of avenues and we should be exploring like, what else can we do? And to that end, I think that we're going to see more and more plugins that are working towards kind of how can I express myself through this plugin without knowing as much about the technicals of the sound? That's kind of a, a cheesy uh, way of putting it because I'm trying to think of a better way of... It's like, I want people... To, as a plugin developer, I want people to be creative. And I think a lot of other plugin developers feel this way. They want to just open people up to be able to just express themselves through the tools they're making. And that's the ultimate joy. Like, I see somebody that is playing a guitar. If I could make an instrument seeing someone play that instrument is what would make me happy. And I think that watching for me personally, watching artists play with plugins, like is just gives me great joy because they are living through that thing when they're using it. It doesn't mean I don't feel the same way about uh, mastering and mixing. In fact, it's, it's almost the same thing. It's like every artisan artist, whatever wants a tool that's an extension of themselves. And and up to a certain point, a lot, lots of tools, they provide you with an interface that tells you what it is they're doing to the sound on a technical level. And I think that we'll see more and more creative interfaces and things that are trying to tell you what it's doing with the sound on a metaphorical level or on a utility-based level. And the challenge going forward is going to be, how do I balance that simplicity of description with uh, expressiveness and creativity? 
because if I make something that's too simple, I've now hamstrung the artist or the artisan or however this person wants to think of themselves. But if I make a bad, like if I make a bad metaphor or have too many controls, we're back at the, like, I only have so many fingers and hands I can yeah. use to operate something at the same time. And, and reaching that elegance is really hard. And I think as time has gone on, I've seen people try more and more and more and more and more creative things in plugins to try to show people what it is they're doing to the sound. And I think things are going to keep going that way. Um, and that's going to open up expression to people who are less and less, let's say, uh, classically trained in the technicals of the audio. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but it does democratize like being able to manipulate sound. And I, I think that that's good for, I don't know, I think it's a good thing. Um, that's where I see him going. What's your take on how AI plays into this? Uh, yeah, AI is, uh, it's a foot gun, <laughs> um, <laughs> like some, but it's in the, it's the opposite kind of foot gun uh, as the airplane cockpit. You could be lazy with it or you could be really creative with it. I think I saw, I don't even know what this manufacturer was, but I saw an ad campaign that I really liked and it said something like, um, enhance your creativity. Don't automate it. Mm, that's good. And I don't know who that was, uh, whoever it is, if you're listening, like, <laughs> thank you for saying that. Cause I think it's a great thought. I think that AI will succeed whenever it helps us express ourselves by getting rid of some minutiae, like, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's the deal. I think whenever we rely on it to do something instead, um, in, in, in the domain of mastering, that would be like, tossing a track, it masters it for me and I just submit it. It's like I've done, I, I have ceded all my creative control to something that has a very alien and, and, and possibly grotesque view of the world. It will get close. It will make decisions that sometimes are, are, um, that are pretty cool, but it also, may, when, when it makes a mistake, boy, is that mistake bizarre. And so AI plays into it, I think, in getting rid of minutiae and in exciting the creativity of somebody who needs a brainstorming partner when they're alone. Just like you, AI is a great tool to, great example, we were trying to think of ideas for the interface for master plan. So I have a computer with a video card and I told it like to generate hundreds of interfaces for me. Did I use any of them? No, they all look super bizarre. They were all, they all looked like almost something, but it was totally weird and alien, but it was great for generating ideas and saying, ah, like I can kind of come up with a mood board for this and I can pick elements out of it that I like um, because it makes it real for me in a way that I could not normally do unless I had a friend who was an artist drawing these all out. Because my mind's eye is much better at sound than it is at visuals. And so this is a perfect thing that helps me with that, with that kind of thing. So I think that AI is good for that. The second thing AI is really good for, we'll call it machine learning instead in this case, is things that DSP developers like myself have been struggling for years to find, let's say, an algorithm for. And all the algorithms fall just a little short. Like they just don't quite do it. There's something that's too pure about the math or that the math can't get, or, or then we don't have a good theory for. AI will be good at specific tasks like that and throwing a model at them and saying, hey, this one thing we can't develop a series of predictable math equations to get the answer for. If, if we throw these, can you find the patterns and do generative stuff to fix them? Um, I think that is another thing. And that's the under the hood AI where you don't know that it's AI, but you just know that the result seems to feel better than it has in the past. And, and those I think are in the DSP realm where we'll find that stuff. 
It's all just about like how you make it performant enough to happen in real time. And again, AIs will always to some degree hallucinate. It's kind of their weakness. And so it's one of those things where it'll work most of the time, but then when it makes a weird decision, boy, will you hear it? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, you know. Yeah. Okay. Last question, Sam. What's the best piece of advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? That's hard. I'm trying to think of like the person and the advice as opposed to general idea. Cause I feel like I've gotten this advice in all sorts of different ways, but it only catalyzed for me very recently when someone said it. So I feel like it's unfair to say I've been applying it for a very long time, but I feel like I have, I just didn't hear it said so succinctly. And I don't know who originally said it, but it's, uh, if you're moving through hell, keep walking. Like <laughs> uh. it's hard. It's hard to make something good. It's really hard. And you're going to be faced with so many challenges, some of them technical, some of them personal, some of them uh, spiritual. And you have to be persistent and believe that you can do it because you can, when you really, when you really put yourself at it, you can make something happen that you, that you felt very far away from, but you can't do it without some level of persistence. Try, 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 do a different thing, <laughs> stuff like that. That's the one that comes to mind because if you're going it on your own, people are not going to listen at first. You're not going to make something even you like at first. You just got to keep, keep doing it. And it will, it will change. You know, the, your surroundings will change. Your feelings will change. The thing you're making will change. It'll start to feel better as time goes on. You can find out more about Sam and Masterplan at musichack.com. That's musichack, M-U-S-I-K, H-A-C-K, musichack, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.